Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, it's Graham. Welcome to a classic big interview. Today, join me. We're going back to season 2015-2016. This is what I had to say about it back then. Coming up, Graham Souness. During my career, players have told me all kinds of things. They've shared, <laughs> whether I've asked them or not, about their sex lives. I remember a very senior player talking to me about being so nervous before a Champions League game, he wished that the bus would break down and he wouldn't arrive. Players have talked to me about being persecuted, they've shared their dreams, they've made me laugh, they've talked about abusive relationships with a parent. I've heard, I think, the A to Z of human experiences told to me by footballers in interview situations. But never before have I heard about a sweater knitted by mum that made you the coolest kid in the schoolyard. This is the soonest experience He is not what you might expect. Nowhere near the player I grew up watching with something between admiration and trepidation. Sunis was an unbelievable midfielder. I think he would probably be the centre point of my all-time 11. Not British, all-time. He was a ferocious man. Some of his tackles, some of his behaviour were dangerous. Yet to speak to, he's intelligent. He's fun, he's multidimensional, he's definitely a hugely cultured man. I think, certainly from my taste, that he still sees football brilliantly, reads it exceptionally, and I I hugely enjoy his company. It was a fantastic afternoon we spent with him down on the English Riviera, and what came up? Well, things like Spurs' greatest mistake, how happy Graham was at Middlesbrough, what it took for him to leave. The expression, find the dope. Tune in for that one. I love that expression. He's going to reveal what exactly kept him awake all night before the European Cup final in Rome. Sit back and lap this up. Graham Souness is an A-grade footballer and he was an A-grade interview. Enjoy. I was first conscious of you as a player probably in the last few months at Borough 
before he moved to Liverpool. And we'll come back to what happened afterwards. It wasn't for a long time I knew that you began at Spurs. And I'm enchanted by the idea. We recently spoke to Charlie Nicholas and I asked him about having been a young but still superstar player at Celtic coming down to London. Because London mm. fascinates me. I'm head over heels in love with the place. So a 15-year-old Edinburgh boy, Graham Soonis, comes down to the world's capital at that stage, London. It's swinging London. I don't know how much... Swinging you were allowed to do by Bill Nicholson age 15. Not on six quid a week. <laughs> or with that budget. But the Beatles are recording uh, Sgt Peppers and you've come down to what's still possibly the, one of the two, three trendiest clubs in the world because of their double achievement. Dave Mackay is probably still there. Gilzine is still there. Who Gilzine, the boy's first book was about Gilzine. Tell us a little bit, please, about coming well, to that Spurs. Well, I ended up at Spurs because I played for Scottish schoolboys against English schoolboys at White Hart Lane. Dave Mackay had broken his leg for the second time, and in the programme he noticed I'd gone to the same school as him. So I had a half-decent game. He recommended me to, to Bill Nick, and then uh, the scout, Charlie Faulkner, pursued me. I can remember one New Year's Eve he spent in our house with my family. At the time, so was a four, from 14 onwards, I'd been training at Celtic Park. Uh, Celtic Park... Jockstein was their manager. The, the, they said to me at the end of that season, because I'm 15 in May, so I wasn't quite 15, they said, well, look, we'll come back to you at the end of the summer. Well, I'd already made my mind up. I was going to go to White Hart Lane. I just, you know, was fancied it. As you, as you rightly said, Spurs were one of the big teams then. And I went there and, and did a lot of growing up there. I did come back for a period of time. That was not so much homesick, because I'd met a girl in Edinburgh when I was 17 years old, romantically involved, came back for a couple of months, Tottenham... There were several teams in Scotland would like to have taken me. Then they didn't. They um, they wouldn't let me go to Tottenham. It actually, an MP for Lynn Livgo, a guy called Tan Diel, actually mentioned it in the Houses of Parliament that sort of the stopping this young Scottish boy earning a living because they wouldn't release me. In the end, I went back to Tottenham and then left or was sold at 19 because I think they got fed up with me. Every Friday afternoon, a team sheet would go up and I wasn't on it. The first team sheet. I used to knock on Bill next door and tell him on a regular basis I was better than um, Alan Muller, who was, I think, captain of England at the time, mm. Martin Peters, and Stevie Perriman, who was a couple of years older than me. Looking back, I must have drove him mad. Looking back, he was 100% right, and I was 100% wrong. But at no time did they say to me, or anyone say to me, just be patient. You know, I'd been part of a very successful youth team there. that had won the Youth Cup, which is a big deal in England. You know, you're the best youth team in England. Well, if I remember, it was an epic where there was yeah. a series of draws... Maybe against Coventry, mm. I think. Yeah, that's correct. I have no idea who came through the ranks with you in that team. Well, but there was, Steve Perriman was in the team. Um, a guy called Ray Clark who went on and ended up playing for Ajax. A guy called Mickey Dillon played in Tottenham's first team several times. Bob was a fullback who ended up... I played against him because he emigrated to New Zealand. And in 82, I played against him in the World Cup. He was the captain of the New Zealand team. But the, the, the Youth Cup final, as I recollect, I scored a, it was a two-legged affair. And we won 1-0 at home and I scored a goal. And then we lost 1-0 away and I got booked. We tossed for the third game, which was in, was in Coventry. And we drew two each and I, I think I scored a goal and got sent off. And then the fourth game was back at White Hart Lane. We won 1-0, I scored a goal. And the rules were that if you got sent off in the final, you didn't get a medal. So I got my six quid bonus. I was on six pounds a week. Basic wage and we got six pounds bonus for winning it. But I never got the medal. Bill Nick always promised me he'd get me a medal, so I'm still waiting. I never, ever got it. In my life, I've, I've imagined many different things because I have a weird and colourful imagination, but 
that I'd be sitting in um, the English Mediterranean trying to persuade Graham Souness that he was right to go and knock on Bill Nick's door and pester mm. him when you've won the Youth Cup, you've won it in that style, you've shown that when the big game comes along, you score, you're going to go on to prove to be maybe Britain's best ever midfielder. And, and surely what you were demonstrating in that, that moment of impatience was only a slight lack of savviness about how to play Bill Nick, but you were interpreting your quality and your ability quite correctly. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was, I've never been um, slow in... Uh, I've never had a... What's the I'm trying to think correct words here? I've never been shy in coming forward, as I would say in Scotland. I've never, I've never undervalued my worth. I think um, the sort of player was always maybe thought it was better than it actually was, which would stand you in good stead if ever the going got tough. You know, I was never, I was never shy in, in telling people that you know I thought I was good enough, and, and ultimately I proved them wrong, and I was right. You know, I, I would imagine Bill Nick is a legendary manager at Spurs. I'd imagine. I'd be his biggest mistake, you know, that he let me go. I mean, he sold me, having played in the first team only once and I, as a substitute in the UEFA Cup in Iceland. I think I, re- I did, I replaced Alan Mullery that night and I played about half an hour. And then at 19, I was home for a new year and Christmas and I got a call that they'd accepted a bid for Middlesbrough and I was sold for £30,000. And, and latterly, I, f- I found out, I could have gone to a couple of, I think Charlton and both Millwall wanted me and they could have sold me to um, clubs in London, but they wanted to get me as far away from London as possible. I imagined asking you about Gilly because he was a fellow Scot, but I've no mm-hmm. idea whether a Scot who was a superstar and is still a cult hero at the lane had time for a... Certainly did. You know, when I went to, when I went to Tottenham, there was Jimmy Robertson, who was a winger. Mm-hmm. There was Dave Mackay, who only spent a couple of weeks there when Dave Mackay was there because he went off to Derby with Brian Clough. But Gilly was there, and he, he was very, very good to me. And I never really had the opportunity to say that to him until maybe three years ago at a Scottish Hall of Fame dinner in Glasgow. And I actually said that to him. He did. He was very good to me. You know, he wasn't putting his arm around me, but he always had a word for me. And he would take the mick out of the English because he was full of technique. He had more technique than anyone else. With the ball, he would embarrass some of his teammates and he would always put it down to him being Scottish. He was, he was good to me. He made me... And it wasn't... I'm not, I, I wasn't looking for anything, but he was, he was good to me. He, he let me know... He, he let me know he was there for me if I ever had a problem. There was something of Berbatov, of sharing him about his movement and his skill. Is, is that... Yeah, he was, he was full of technique. He was the most wonderful header of the ball. You know, he could guide headers, he could glance headers, and the ball played into his feet. He was, he was full of technique. Not, as I recall, not overly aggressive, but not scared. You, someone that today would would love the the modern game, you know, because as, because of his technique, he'd be allowed to get on a wee bit more. I'm imagining, in fact, I'm not imagining. I've cheated a little bit with a friend in common, who I'll tell you about in a minute. And I and I asked about what the Middlesbrough experience might have been like for you, and he seemed to think that that Jack Charlton, who was the manager at that time, had not only found the ideal man, the ideal footballer, in this young fella he was signing from Spurs, but that he helped you. Uh, it was suggested to me in terms of rigour, in terms of, if not discipline, maybe the, 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 just that move from talent into the professional world. Of- yeah, I mean, I, as I said, I was always, I always had an... Ex- <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say it, but I'm being honest. I always had a very, very high opinion of myself. And I, when I look back now, you know, I'm a man of... a granddad of 60-odd now. And I think I was the youngest of three boys. And I think I got tremendous confidence. I came from a really tight family, you know, a great mum and dad... But I was the youngest of three boys, and I always had that, I don't know, that comfort blanket, if you like. You always had that security. I had two older brothers. 
The real upside on that, of course, in football terms, I always had someone to play football with. Mm -hmm. And I always played with people who were better than me. So that made me a bit tougher, maybe, than most. Did you also play with people who would give you... The brothers would give you a kick if needed if you were a bit... I, I think on a, I would imagine on a weekly basis I got some treatment and I would say I deserved it 100% of the time. <laughs> okay, this is a line I didn't expect quite to go down. Mm. Jack as a man, I mean... When, when... But Jack didn't sign me. It was Stan Anderson who signed me. And the reason he signed me, because, as I believe it, Harold Shepperson was Alf Ramsey's assistant. Shep was assistant manager at Middlesbrough. And I think Martin Peters, Martin Chivers... Alan Mullery had all told, or Shep had asked them about him, or they had told me, had told them about me, and that's how I ended up there. And then I only ever played one game for Stan, which was my very first game for Middlesbrough, an FA Cup tie at Plymouth, and we lost that, and I quickly got him the sack. And then Jack came along, and where you were going with, the, with your um, question was it? Jack did basically, he sat me down. As I said, I was quite large, you know, I thought the sun shot of the backside, so... I can remember the conversation vividly. He just said, look, you could be a really good player and have a great, a great career, might win something. Or you could be like a lot of other talented young men who just drift out the game and never achieve anything. And I, and I was ready for that sort of chat. As I said, when I was at Tottenham, there was no great communicators. The only guy I used to talk to us was, was the youth coach, Pat Welton, who you know, I knew liked me. And then there was Eddie Bailey, who was you know, a rough diamond, you know, Black and white, Bill Nick just didn't really speak very much. He was an austere man. Bill's a legend because the things that he did, he didn't just win, he built teams that were glorious to look at too. But I've spoken to, I've never, I never met him. And therefore I'm speaking through others who, who worked for him. And I was taught that he was quite, he could be an austere, maybe even quite an old he fashioned man. He was, he never, he wasn't, he was from Scarborough, a Yorkshireman. No, I don't, what does that mean? You know, Dewey Yorkshireman, I think that's, that's... I've not coined that There's phrase. a certain steel in the Yorkshire yeah, character. I, I mean, listen, he's, he's a legend. He knew his football. He knew players. But he wasn't a great communicator. Mm-hmm. Maybe that was the way it was in those, in those days. But nobody... If someone had said to me at that, looking back, if someone had said to me, look, we think you've got a real chance. We don't think you're quite ready. Just be patient. I might not have been so difficult to deal with. Mm-hmm. I might have had a very different career. But you said an interesting phrase that you were ready to listen at Borough, by the time Jack yeah. was preaching to you, and and I and I've, I've listened to both those brothers, and you know initially when I listened to Jack, he was the most colourful, funny football man I'd ever he's come across. So aggressive, he's very great. You know, he's very aggressive, and I responded to that. Ah, I say aggressive, abrupt, sharp, to the point. There was no pussyfooting around the subject. It, it was, was a, he was straight to it. It was he demanding. Was a, yeah, and I and I respond. I respond to that. Which is a characteristic which has never really gone away. I like to think, I'm a, you know, if you put it in front of me, I'll deal with it. Can I take a sidetrack and ask you whether you think that's <clears throat> something that's particularly a Sooners family trait mm. in its positive side? Or is it something that, that north of the border we tend to have an overdose of, that we, we, we do like to respond, we like to be up for it, and we almost can't be seen not to be? I think there's an element that with Scottish people. I think here we are a minority group. You know, and coming to sort of coming, I was like that before I went to England. You know, I, I, I come back to the only, the only, I can only talk for myself. I think Scottish people and historically Scottish managers, there's always been a lot of them, successful ones. Maybe it's something in us which I can't find the words for, but I can talk about myself. I think what I had, which got me through the difficult times and was ready for the challenges that came along, was being the youngest of three boys. I had a father who never, ever, never said a bad word to me. You know, I was his. My other brothers might, might disagree when they hear this, but I, I, I was his favourite. I was, I was a bear and I was a baby. 
My mother, if she got hold of me, would throttle me every opportunity, but she, I could always run away, but my brothers would catch me. <laughs> so she was a disciplinarian, but my dad never, never said a cross word to me. He certainly never raised his hand to me. I had the most wonderful childhood. And I can only put it down to, you know, being confident in life because of my childhood and my, my parents. You're hinting at a security, a self-security. Yes. Oh, yeah. I'm and an ability to say, well, if I've got something to demonstrate with my feet or if I've got something to say, then I've got every right to, to do so. Mm-hmm. I wish more kids in society were brought up like that. would have a damn sick was, problem. No, I was always given enough rope to hang myself. <laughs> enough to get myself in trouble to the point where I'd be reined in. Again, but again, I look back at my childhood and it was just... You know, I was good enough at school. I always knew I was going to be a football player. I was always outside... I always had lots of pals. And I, I look back on my childhood as, as, although it only lasted till I was 15 in Scotland, then I left, but my childhood up to that point was just, was just fabulous. You're echoing things that, when I sat down with Gordon Strachan and we talked about this degree to which, particularly in Scotland, we've lost our love for the ball, we've lost our mastery of the ball, we've lost our innate, what I thought was an innate desire to develop our skills sufficiently that we could not just win, but we could show people how to do it with style. And he talked about that type of childhood and that, that incessant need to be outside. If you were good at football, you played it all the time. Then, now, did you feel that you always have to be near a football? Could you, would you pick no, up a football No, I always have to be outside. Outside rather yeah, than I'm, the ball itself. I've been, out, I've been in my garden. That's why I was five minutes late. I've been in my garden, cutting grass. And I, I have to get outside, even if it's raining, if it's cold. As a kid, I was either... I was outside kicking a ball or on a bike. I was always outside. But you got to remember, there was nothing inside in those days. You, know, you couldn't flick a telly on and be... There were 200 channels to choose from. You know, you, you were turning lights off to save money for the electricity bill. I was dropping a prefab. It was cold. It was cold inside as it was outside. Get out and I'm move not, around. I'm not trying to paint a picture that were... You know, but was, get out and move around to stay never, warm. Yeah, I never ever thought we were hard up. But looking back, things were extremely tight. But I... I never, ever went short of anything. I was always the best dressed at school because my mother was a wonderful knitter mm-hmm. and I used to have the most wonderful sweaters. <laughs> and, of course, being the youngest, I got all the hand-downs from my brothers. But things must have been tight. You know, my mum had a job. He worked in the local government building in the kitchen. And my dad had two jobs. He had three, three sort of hungry sons to feed, didn't he? deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So you've talked about, I mean, you've, you've painted a picture of why somebody with talent might be secure about taking risks and going south and asking to play and then being moved on and taking on the challenge of playing for a World Cup winner less than 10 years after he'd been a World Cup winner. Jack Charlton was a very big personality, not the man who signed you, but the man who, who challenged you to make the next step in your career. And Again, that, that I'd somehow or other, when, when, before you moved to Liverpool, when Borough were in the, the top division, Somehow or another, as a relative youngster, 13, 14, a Scot playing in an English team was always an attraction. So I began to know of your name and follow you. And then the move to Liverpool... Well, you're going to remember the name, aren't you? Even in Scotland, suppose, it's a very rare name. I suppose that's true. I suppose that's true. And I'll be honest and say that Middlesbrough played in red and white. My team's Aberdeen. And mm. it was an identifiable strip. It was mm-hmm. not quite yeah, a reverse Ajax. The, but yeah. but it, it was reminiscent yeah. of Ajax too because of the white hoop around the red. We didn't play like Ajax. <laughs> Were there... I mean, I shouldn't... I don't want to skip past Middlesbrough, but the, the questions are bursting out at me about life at Anfield. What was... What, oh, what can was, I just tell you at Middlesbrough? I lived in Diggs in Middlesbrough with a woman called Phoebe Hague who, who was like... My mother, only she let me get away with far more than my mother did. When the time came to leave, there was talk. I was so happy there. I mean, this sounds ridiculous. Numbers were, with all due respect, limited. You know, they're, never, they're never going to be one of the big guys, are they? So at the time, there was Leeds, who were a big club, and Man City were both interested. When the time came, and I knew that Liverpool were interested as well, through Phil Borsma, who was a teammate of mine at Middlesbrough, who had come from Liverpool to Middlesbrough. And his big mate was a guy called Bob Rockliffe, who sadly died last year. And Bob Rockliffe had a garage where Bob Paisley used to go every single morning for a cup of tea before training and pick the horses. Uh, so I knew Liverpool were interested. But when the time came to leave, I was told to go to the Queen's Hotel in Leeds. And I can remember saying to myself, if it's Leeds or Man City, I'm not going to go. If it's Liverpool, it's a different story. Because it wouldn't tell me who I was going to meet. And that's how much, and it sounds ridiculous, and this is a fact, I was so happy and content at Middlesbrough. as much to do with the environment I had. Now, this might be contradicting any thoughts you have about my personality, but I was so happy and content there. And we had a good team, remember? Mm-hmm. I think we finished fifth or sixth in the Premier League, the what, first division. I'm going to say Natras, Pop Robson, people of that generation. Am I? They, they, he wasn't at Middlesbrough then. He, no. he was at Sunderland, wasn't he, Pop Robson? He went to, went to West Ham. Give me some of the ideas of who played with you. David Mills played, who oh, ended yes. up being a British transfer Big record. To John Hickton. West Brom, did he go to? Yes, okay. Ron Hickson bottom. 
John Nixon, Bobby Murdoch, of course, was there for a bit. Alan Foggin oh, yeah. was a great goal scorer. Yeah. David Armstrong, who played for England, had a wand of a left foot. That's yeah, sorry, David. But a guy called Willie Madron, who was a, who was the best player we had, but had a dodgy left knee, and sadly Willie got that it, terrible, it, terrible disease, motor neuron, yeah, yeah. that took him only at a young age, and he was a proper player. And we had, Jim, we had Jim Platt, maybe Jim Platt, the goalkeeper. Yeah. yeah. Stuart Bowman, centre half. I can Frank Spragan, left back. We had, we, had some, we had some really good players. Some really good players. So, anyway, I go to the Queen's Hotel in Leeds and it's, it's Liverpool and then the rest is history, if you like. What, what had made you so attracted to, to Liverpool? Because I think people listening to that now who, who maybe didn't see that era might have forgotten that it's only a couple of years before that decision that City, OK, four or five years previously, City have been champions of England. But they're reaching European UEFA finals in. Leeds have been, for the previous eight, nine years, hmm. competitive, aggressive, dominant, maybe just ahead of Liverpool at that stage. They're a year off under Jimmy Arnfield reaching the European Cup they final, but your heart's set on Liverpool. When you look at what Leeds won with that great team, that yeah. had, it wasn't too much. No. Should have won a European Cup, admittedly. I think they were cheated out of a European Peter Cup. Peter Lorimer's free kick. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, when Liverpool came in, the year before, so that was January 78 and May 77... We were in Wollongong on tour with Middlesbrough in a miners' club, a German, full of Germans watching Liverpool beat British Mission Gladbach in yeah. Rome for the first time. What a game that was. But Liverpool, and Liverpool is, for me, still the best place to play football. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's bigger and newer stadiums. But Anfield is, a, is still, we'll go into that maybe later, but in terms of, you go to Anfield, I don't care what team you support, you go to Anfield and listen to them singing... Mm-hmm. You'll never walk alone before the game. Everyone must get the hairs rising on the back of their neck. It seems to me before we talk about special place. the playing and you're playing there, what you've just described feels to me, now you can say that it's a stupid expression or romantic, but when great sport, when great football intersects with something in its people, some sort of social movement of expression, whether it's the, the wit that the Anfield crowd was famously, you know, said to have during the 60s and every new pop song was ch- turned into a chant... But that passion that you're talking about, that's something, that expression of a, of, a, of a need from a people to see it's 11 men doing well and lift the city up, lift the town up, get away from the working class life, which was harder in those days mm-hmm. than it is now if you can get a job now. I, I think that's the communion that you're talking about, brilliant sport, plus well, people urging them on because of something beyond I just like a win. Yeah, I think it was just a unique place in those days. You know, the music scene mm. in the 60s, the 70s, going into the 80s, it was a unique place that was the club to play for. For people who might who are listening to this might find this really hard to, to take on board. In those days, if you had a chance to go to Liverpool, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, you went to Liverpool. Mm-hmm. Liverpool were the dominant team. Liverpool were the team. They were the serial winners. They had found that magic and there was never a choice. There was never a choice. It was just a very special place to be. I'm often riveted by what you say on the television because it's educational. It lifts me up and it, and it sparks ideas. You once Thank you. used one of the best expressions I've ever heard any ex-manager, any ex-footballer say when I think you were commentating on a, a bus on away game in the first season of Pep Guardiola. Shakhtar Donetsk had been leading 1-0 in a really bruising game and had gone to sleep. And Barcelona had thrown off a hotly con- one off a hotly contested throw-in that Shakhtar weren't awake for. And you said, you just said, find the dope. You said, that's what we were always taught. And mm-hmm. you said, and you explained what it meant. You said, at Liverpool, we were always taught, poor players will take a breather. 
a second yeah. or two. Well, yeah. That seemed to me encapsulate something of the brilliance of the thinking and the coaching beyond just putting together 15 or 16 superb footballers at Liverpool. Yeah, it makes me chuckle today because, you know, the new buzzwords, new terminology, the new, what do they call it, the um, false number nine. <laughs> you know, all the, the technical cages, you know, the new philosophy, the project. I, I may be guilty of some of this. Well, you know, let me tell you, uh, Bob Paisley would, on a regular basis, say, can someone please, and there'd be an expletive, someone please tell me what leading the line means. Or would someone effing tell me what blindside run is? And he used to chuckle then. So what he's doing now, <laughs> looking down on us, he must be he must be in his alley, he must be chuckling every time football comes on the telly. Um, there's nothing new in football. Mm-hmm. But Liverpool had a very basic way of getting the message across to you. You know, from Ronnie Moran to Joe Fagan to, to, to Bob Paisley. There was so much knowledge, they had so much knowledge, and, and a lot of it must have, you know, been gained with their experiences and a lot of it listening to Shanks, so I think he was exactly the same. Just simplified it. And what you're talking about there is in the game of football, as the game goes on, someone will go to sleep. Because what separates the really top players is that they don't go to sleep. They never knock off. They're thinking, they're thinking the brain's going from the first whistle to the very last one. The, the average to good players, when the ball goes out for a throw and the ball goes dead for a free kick, they're looking, the brain switches off, they're looking for a little rest. It might only be a second, two seconds. But they're looking for a little rest to dream about where they're going that night, what they're going to do tomorrow. The fully focused players are the great players who all the time are thinking ahead of their opponents. And we were always told, there'll be a dope out there, find them. Someone will go to sleep at a vital time, find them. Get in behind them, yeah. break the marking, yeah. take the throw quicker. Yeah. And I, I was speaking about it on Sunday at, the, um, at Southampton Man United. I was doing the game. Man United are all this possession. And I said on the what they're looking to do is there'll be someone just goes to sleep. You know, they're moving the ball side to side and they're poking it into the centre forward. It's coming back out. And just, you have that much possession. Somewhere, one of that back four, one of the midfield players will not do the job for a split second. And that's the opening you go for. And that's what Barca do. That's what Bayern Munich do. That's what Real Madrid do. That's what all the top teams do. They'll keep the ball and they appear to be going nowhere with it. And they're just looking for a dope. See, this is, what, this is where um, age, for once, is an advantage because we didn't live in an age of sky then, but we could watch Liverpool regularly. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't watching to learn. I was watching for pleasure on television. But if you have a love of football, you, you pick up a little bit. And, and what I saw in that era, it was very difficult to get the, team, the, the, the ball off your team. And, and I felt that you were a team that when you were allowed to play, when you wanted to play, maybe particularly at Anfield, it was just glorious to watch. It was, it was sublime. When things weren't quite going for you, when it was an away game, domestically or European... It would make it a different game. Oh, I, I saw two utterly distinct characteristics, but it was, for me, it was deliberate, it was intelligent, it was ruthless. But it was that mixture of really ruthless football, but also some of the best English club football that I think there's ever been. Yeah, we, I don't think, I don't think the, the Liverpool of that really gets the credit, because... Listen, people will tell you, but the game's changed a lot quicker. That's absolute bollocks. All our training was geared to one and two touch. Mm. But we were doing it on pitches which were terrible. So if we could do it, if we could play one and two touch on those pitches, mm. what could those players do today on these pitches? 
It's, it's, one, it's not about how quick you can run. It's about your speed of thought mm-hmm. and how much technique you your have. Your ability as well. How much technique you have yeah. to play one and two touch. Yeah. What picture you have in your head to be able to play one and two touch. And what we also had, we had we've got players who I, I think were so underrated. Yeah, I'll give you one, Phil Neal. He's got five European Cup medals. Mm-hmm. The European Cup, the Champions League. Mm-hmm. He's got four winners and one losers. Now, Anyone can get lucky once and win that competition. And there are, there are people and teams who have won it once and were very lucky. He's a serial winner of that. He's, he's sandwiched by and Paco you, Gento and just behind him, Andres Iniesta. So yeah, it's quite good company. Never, people never talk, of, talk about him. Ray Kennedy, you know, God bless him. And this is not a sympathy walk because he's suffered terribly for the last 25 years with Parkinson's. Ray Kennedy was a 12, 15 goals a season from left side midfield. And what would, you, what would that be worth today? Terry Mack with 20 goals sure. a season. I'd bet Terry Mack... What a footballer. I wouldn't bet him. He would bet me pre-season who's going to score the most for 100 quid. Every Christmas, just before Christmas, you're going to pay me now then. And I paid him at Christmas. It was a standing joke. You know, I'm getting five and six and sevens, and he's getting 25. But he, he had me on toast for that. and I'm seeing him tomorrow night, so I might ask him for some of it back. You, you, you talked about the quality of a footballer like Phil Neal or Terry Mack or Ray... And you've talked about the awful pitches, but that you train for one and two touches. Can you just describe to us what the training exercises were like that emphasised that? What did they demand of you? Small games, tight Uh areas like they do today. Small games, tight areas. Sevens against sevens, eights, fives. Sevens, eights, tight areas. Two touch. Then they go to all in, then maybe back to two touch, all in. And time and time again, people would turn up from all over the world to Melwood and have their clipboard and they're writing what we do. We'd walk around the perimeter of the training ground at Melwood, we'd jog around the perimeter, we'd stretch, we'd do three-quarter sprints, and then we'd do some sprints, five aside, break for a few more sprints, five aside, a few more sprints and go home. So the first couple of days, he's written that down. On the third day, you see his folder sitting next to him on the bench. (laughs) He'd give up. And then I would say half a dozen times, one of these guys would say to me, you come back in the afternoon and do your real work? <laughs> they thought we're hiding something from them? It can't be this. Let me give you a couple of examples of that. It's that uh, my first game and my last game. So when I was sold from Middlesbrough to, to Liverpool, I was, a, I was a record between two English clubs, which is quite a big deal for a defensive midfield player. You Normally know, it's the strikers that go for the big money. So um, I'm training, like I've just described. The first game's away to West Brom. So... I'm in the dressing room. I'm looking, you know, John Toshak, Tommy Smith, Ray Clemens, Ian Callaghan, Steve Highway, all these, you know, serial winners. And I said at quarters to three, I said, I've got to ask, I've got to ask. So I said, Joe, can I have a word? So Joe Fagan came over. And I'm trying to whisper this. I said, Joe, you know, I've been here a week. How, no one's said anything to me. How does he want me to play? Now, Joe was, had the softest voice. And when he, when he spoke, he had to sort of lean, lean in and listen to him. And he never, very rarely raised his voice. So... <laughs> He went, what? He said, F off, which was so unlike Joe. We've spent all this effing money on you and you're asking me how to play football. By this time, the dressing was looking at me, laughing at me. So I never asked again. So that was my very first game. My very last game was European Cup final. Rome in Rome. We'd won the League Cup, we'd won the league. And then we'd gone to Israel for six days in the sun to relax. Came back on a Saturday and the game was on a Wednesday. When I say relax, it was like boys going to southern Spain for a real proper relaxation. Never mind football, I was just... Cultural night out. Yeah. I mean, it was, 
It was pretty full on. And there was two Italian journalists came on that show. I'm getting sidetracked here. And as a captain, I said, why don't you come down, come up for dinner with us one night? Well, they couldn't leave the hotel before we went for dinner because we got them pissed. <laughs> we stand at the bar and like, they had had three beers. And they said, sorry, we can't come out. Head spinning. They just couldn't believe what we were doing. They would see us around the pool, ordering the beers and sitting out in sun in, in Israel, 100 degrees. So anyway, we come, we get to the game. We've never mentioned Roma. Roma are, we're playing Roma in Rome. We're Liverpool. We're Liverpool. They've got World Cup winners. They've got Cerezo and Falcao, two great Brazilian midfield players. So we've never mentioned them. So the Tuesday night before the Wednesday game, we arrive at Tuesday afternoon, train in the stadium on the Tuesday night. We go to bed. I'll tell you the full story because it is, I think it is quite how we describe it. Kenny and I are in the room together. So we get into bed, sensible. The telly's blaring next door, so banging on the, the wall, nothing. I go out, bang on the door, nothing. Phone down. Someone comes up to try, nothing. So eventually we get to sleep. Wake up in the morning, Wednesday morning. We're coming out our room, and the person coming out the room next to where all the noise was, was our manager. <laughs> it was Joe Fagan. I said, boss, I said, you kept us awake all night. I said, sorry, boys, we, we opened the second bottle of scotch last night. <laughs> it was a long night. <laughs> so then, that's the Wednesday morning. So they've arranged a training ground for us, which we turn up and it's a ploughed field, so we don't train. Then we come back, so we don't train, we just have a walk. We come back to the hotel, we're having our lunch. Joe stood up, tapped his glass, asked the waiters to leave, and we're all nudging ourselves saying, what's he going to say? Because we never had team meetings. No one ever spoke. We've not mentioned Roma. So he stood up and we're all nudging, what's he going to say? So he stood up and he was looking up at the ceiling and he said, big game tonight. Um, These are a good team. They must be a good team. Won the championship last year, final of the European Cup. He's talking to himself. <laughs> and then he said, um, can't be as good as us. Now, the bus leaves at 5.30. Make sure no one's late. That was the team top. Never knew it. We didn't know. We never spoke about their players. We knew that some big players. And we went out, and they were frightened to death of us. We played them off the park. They were frightened of us. Explain that. Do you mean a mix of your footballing ability, what you'd achieved before, or do you mean your... Mentality. The... We had the mentality which was a bit like how they train a police dog. When you train a police dog, when they train a police dog, the dog never loses. The bad guy has to walk away. You know, he has to back off. So the police dog's always on. And we were a bit like that. We, we were always, the only thing they, they said to us before games wasn't, you know, you're playing a team that plays 4 4 2 or be care, worry about. We never mentioned opposition. What they would say is, if you lot are at it today, there's nothing for anyone. Nothing for any of them. And that included a European Cup final against Rome in Rome. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.